better? A little better? Okay. Long time listener, first time caller here. Good morning, Christ Church. Um, I'm always grateful to serve here uh, by sharing God's word with you. For those of you that may not know me, my name is Chris Molina, and I am a former elder here at Christ Church. That may sound like I was voted off the island, but uh, really my elder term had ended at the end of last year, and so I've just been working on my golf game and enjoying that elder pension, and some of our mil- uh, members are like, we didn't, we didn't vote on an elder pension, right? No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, this weekend, Judd is in New Jersey attending a wedding for extended family, and last weekend he asked if I would step in and lead this morning in his absence, and I said, sure. Um, Even though I wasn't really sure what my structure outline would be, I'd kind of been going through the book of Jude, and I thought, well, hey, at the very least, I've got an easy sermon title, right? Hey, second to last book of the Bible is what, okay, and actually what you guys did was much better, so. Um, But Jude is one of the shortest books of the Bible, and it's often overlooked. And I say that both literally and figuratively. It's only one chapter and 25 verses, And as I just mentioned, it's the second to the last book of the Bible, just before Revelation. Now, this letter contains both comforting and challenging words to Christians. Last Sunday was Easter, and we celebrated and rejoiced in Jesus' resurrection from the tomb and overcoming death. This event is an essential truth in Christianity. It's essential to the faith, would you agree? This significant part of the gospel shouldn't be disputed if you're a believer. We often think that protecting the gospel is standing shoulder to shoulder, surrounding the church facing outward at those who are looking to destroy it. But Jude warns that there is a catastrophic danger, not from the people on the outside, but from within the church. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word this morning? Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother to James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, I pray that this scripture is illuminated as we look together at the book of Jude. Help me be the mouthpiece to your message, to the hearts of your people this morning. Thank you for providing your written word, which is life-changing and timeless. Be with us this morning. Amen. You may be seated. So while you're thinking over those verses, I want to spend some time on the man who wrote them. Who was Jude exactly? Not much is written about Jude, the person. Unlike Paul, his letter doesn't talk about his travels or churches that he visited or people he encountered. Jude is a nickname for Judas, which was a very popular name in that day. 
I think we can understand why he chose to go with Jude, not to be confused with Judas who betrays Jesus. There's also another man named Judas as one of the 12 disciples, but he's often called Thaddeus, so this is not our Jude. We have to use the clues in the opening text of his letter and connect the dots. He says he's a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. <clears throat> okay, well, there are a lot of servants to Jesus Christ, and James was a pretty popular name back in that day as well. We know from reading Matthew 4.21 that this is not James, one of the 12 disciples. That James was the son of Zebedee, and he had a brother who was also a disciple named John. This James is considered the man who became a prominent leader in the early church, as it's written in Acts 15. He's also the author of the book of James in the Bible. But there's a twist. Paul gives us a big identity reveal about Jude when he writes this about James in Galatians 1.19. He says, But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So James is the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if Jude was the brother of James, then this would make him the half-brother of Jesus too. Let's look at Mark 6, when Jesus is teaching in the synagogue and people start talking about him in verse 3. They say, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? It's the same in Matthew 13, 55. So how cool is it to see that Scripture is revealing to us that Jude grew up with Jesus? Both of them called Mary mother. I think I have a slide to describe how we feel now. I spent a lot of time on that, okay? So, why does Jude not use this relationship to open his letter, right? It seems like a, a missed marketing opportunity. Hey, everyone, pay attention to me. I'm the half-brother of Jesus. I want to get a little more airtime. Instead, he elects to reference himself as a servant of Jesus Christ rather than his brother. He chooses not to seek fame for himself, but instead demonstrates humility. It's a title of honor. He's a bondservant, a slave, not to men, but to God, knowing that Jesus Christ was sacrificed for the atonement of sin. Those are powerful words. I bet growing up with Jesus, Jude was like that all the time. Or was he? Dun, dun, dun. By reading the following in Jude 7, we can understand the true weight of Jude calling himself a servant of Jesus. Verses 2 through 5, Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that the disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Yes, Jude did not believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be while he was ministry, ministering. Uh, slide. There we go. Again. So, Jude and his brothers would rather see Jesus put on a dramatic display of power. You know, get that blue check mark, right? Build up your subscriber list. Get those followers so they can hit the like button. But Jesus said to them in verse 6, My time has not yet come. We know Jesus later reveals himself 
in the most dramatic way, not by the spectacular miracles that the brothers were asking for, but from shame on the cross. But that's not, um, but that's not, it's not the death that actually changes James and Jude. It's the resurrection. Paul writes about Jesus appearing to more than 500 people at a time after he comes out of the tomb. And in 1 Corinthians 17, or 15, 7, he says, Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles. A change in the brothers has now occurred. And we see it in Acts 1.14. Before Matthias was added to the eleven, when the remaining disciples returned to Jerusalem and were with Jesus' family in the upper room, we read that all these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. His brothers devoting themselves to prayer. James was converted after Jesus had conquered death, standing present before him. And we have every reason to believe that Jude was also saved at that time. Okay, so I know I spent a good chunk of time going through this man named Jude, but hopefully after knowing all this, now, when you read his words, you're hearing from a man who went through a really big transformation. What an incredible spiritual journey. I wish Jude had included more about himself and his testimony in his letter, but instead he puts the focus on a real danger that's within the church and gives a call, a push, for the brothers and sisters in Christ to contend for the faith. So let's start with the heart of this passage. What does it mean to contend for the faith? Well, the Greek word is an athletic term that gives us our English word agonize. It's agonize greatly, exert intense effort. Picture a devoted athlete striving, battling, competing in the Greek games, such as a wrestling match or another form of hand-to-hand combat. The Greek word for contend is epagonizumai. It sounds like a new form of martial arts, right? It's fun to say epagonizumai. Such an athlete suffers for their sport through training and the wear and tear of their body from struggle with the opposition. The appeal from Jude to the believer is similar. This will not be easy, and it will take strength. So this morning, we're going to ask ourselves several questions. The first is, what exactly is the faith we're contending for? Well, that is the truths we believe about the one we trust. The truths we believe about the one we trust. Verse 3 says, Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith refers to that basic body of truth to which all Christians are committed to. There are truths about God and Christ and man and the church and the world which are essential to the life of Christianity. Some examples are Christ's atoning death in the place of sinners, Christ's resurrection, salvation by grace through faith, Christ's second coming, the holy lifestyle that flows from God's grace in Christ. That's the fabric of the faith. And Jude is telling us that, hey, that's worth defending. This is the body of doctrine that was given to God, given by God through the apostles to the church. 
Here Jude says it was delivered to the saints, which means it was not invented by the church, but was taught to the church. Paul admonished both Timothy and Titus to make sure the believers were being taught sound doctrine, because that's what promotes the spiritual health of the church. Well, what else do we notice about the faith? It says it's complete. It has been given, he says, once for all. The Bible represents the sum total of God's revelation to us about Jesus Christ's salvation and how to live our lives as Christians. God had spoken once for all in these writings in the Bible. Now, while individual teachers and preachers may disagree on the fine points of theology, the essentials of the Christian faith are non-negotiable. We should not add to it or take anything from it. Because if the faith gets distorted, the result is not merely being a wrong idea, but now you have misplaced trust. So question number two, why? Why should we contend for the faith? Okay, well, before we get to that, let's look at verse three, because something happens here in the background, and the book shifts its purpose a little. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He was planning to praise God and rejoice in their common salvation in Jesus. This could have been one of those continuing the faith type of letters. This could have been one of those letters of thanksgiving. But the Spirit sounded an alarm in Jude's heart. These Christians needed to wake up. Now, if you're a parent and you need to wake up your kids for school, there's different ways to do that. Maybe you're the parent that tiptoes in the room, quietly opens the door, takes their shoes off, walks over, doesn't turn on the light, sits on the bed, rubs their back, whispers, hey, it's time to get up. Or maybe you're the parent that opens the door, hey, the light's on, hey, get up, we gotta go, we gotta go, come on, school starts, we gotta go, come on, hey, get dressed, get dressed, where's your violin? I don't know, great, okay, where's the iPad? Okay, gotta go, gotta go, hey, 30-minute warning. Sounds kind of like our house. Jude is using this second approach here. The church needs to know that the threat to the faith is actually coming from those who are on the inside doing eternal damage. So now we can answer this question. Why should we contend for the faith? To protect it when threatened, even from within the church. In verse 4, he says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. It's these false teachers who have slipped in, stealth-like, into the church, and it's these that Jude's readers have to contend with. Well, how could this have happened? It's because the guardians of the gospel, which sounds like a really weird movie title, have gone to sleep at the post. The spiritual leaders in the church had grown complacent and careless. 
And this explains why Jude had to sound the alarm and wake the people up. And he doesn't hold back when he describes these false teachers, does he? They are ungodly and perverted. Jude sees through their scheme, but he knows that some of the flock are actually following and trusting these wolves. And why not? I mean, these men claim to be of God, but they were in fact ungodly in their thinking and their living. See, it was their lifestyle that was the evidence of them denying Jesus. Well, how so? <clears throat> well, they were people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Sensuality simply means absence of moral restraint, indecency. It's commonly related to lust, but includes any works of the flesh. You see, these ungodly people were using God's good grace like a diplomatic immunity badge so they could provide them freedom for immoral behavior. How, did, how would this sound? Well, I mean, you've been saved by grace, right? Um, God's grace is sufficient to cover all your faults. Well, then you're free to just live how you want. It doesn't really matter if you live life morally. Wouldn't the grace of God be magnified even more based on how many sins it's covering? Actually sounds pretty appealing. This might be a common temptation that Christians have today. But Paul provides a firm response to this subject in Romans 6.15. He says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. There is no true freedom in this false doctrine, only bondage that leads to separation from God due to the misplaced trust. Jude saw these certain people turn the grace of God against the commandments of Christ and had to address it right away. Because grace is the gift that a Christian enjoys as the result of the forgiveness of their sins and the adoption into the family of God. Grace is perfect, just as it is offered, just as it was delivered to the saints. Now you're probably thinking, Whew, well, that sounds like some serious stuff. I am so glad that we've got some leaders in the church that will contend for the faith. Uh, but what does that have to do with me? I'm so glad that you asked that. It's like I knew it. That's why I wrote it down. Question number three, who should contend for the faith? Every genuine believer. When looking at the audience for Jude, recall that Jude knows that he and his readers have a common salvation. So he knew many of those to whom he was writing but this letter serves a general purpose as well in nature, and it's for the Christian who is reading it at the moment. Go back to verse 1. It's to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, I know you were listening to that, but did you really hear it? It did not say, to those who are called into full-time ministry, to those who, are attended, who have attended seminary, to those who have been trained in philosophy, to those who are skilled debaters, to those who have knowledgeable and comparative, are knowledgeable in comparative religions. 
Did anyone insert that subconsciously? Pretty easy to do. Did you notice the Trinity reference in there, too? All three persons of the Godhead are to be involved in our salvation. To those who are called and set apart by the Spirit. Not merely an invitation to know Him, but called by the gospel to trust in Jesus Christ. Beloved in God the Father. There was no reason for their being called by God other than the reality that they were loved by God. And those kept in G- for Jesus Christ. They're preserved, spiritually intact. While their fellowship with the Father may change from day to day, their relationship as heirs cannot. Called by the Spirit, beloved in the Father, kept for the Son. All three verbs are past tense, which means Jude is very eager to begin his letter by stressing the security of the believer's identity in God's preserving love. It's not possible for you to read this text and come to the conclusion that contending for the faith, well, that's only for the Navy SEAL Christian. That's only for the pastor. No, brother in Christ, sister in Christ, this message is directed to you and to me. We are to contend for the faith. This is actually also a responsibility we put on our members here at Christ Church. If you are a member here, hopefully you know that, If you're considering a church membership, spoiler alert, I'm going to give you an inside look as to what those conversations look like. An elder will ask the person to briefly share with them what the gospel is. Now, you don't need to come with a full dissertation, but there are essential truths to the faith we need to hear from you. There are several basic expectations for the new member. One of them is for the new member to preserve the gospel, guard its purity and message right here at Christ Church. Now, after establishing his audience, Jude goes right into wanting special blessings to be multiplied in their lives. In verse 2, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. We observe that Paul, Peter, and Jude all wrote about contentions they were having with professing Christians. So we're in good company with wisdom from them on how to prepare ourselves ahead of time and how to engage with others who teach things that are contrary to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Jude begins to conclude his letter this way in verse 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So how? How do we contend for the faith? Well, we study scripture, we pray, and we live out the gospel. He starts by saying, building yourself up in your most holy faith. It's impossible to discern truth from error if you don't know the truth. You can know the truth by knowing your Bible. Study it. Grow in it. Memorize it. I cannot recommend highly enough getting a study Bible if you don't have one. If you don't know where to start on 
connecting the dots or looking at the historical background. Um, I have these two, ESV and NIV. Um, Scott saw these and thought, wow, how long are we going to be here? Um, but I really, really encourage you to get those if you don't have one already. Because there's so much wonderful truth about God to learn. And when you know God's words and truths, you're prepared and able to respond to threats against it. He says, praying in the Holy Spirit. Prayer is an indispensable part of contending for the faith. Unless we seek the mind of the Holy Spirit in prayer, we will not grow in our grasp of the faith, and we will be weak contenders. Romans 8.26 Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and then waiting for the mercy to bring you eternal life. Believers are waiting for the return of Jesus. How are we supposed to wait? By living as the new creation that we are. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The way you live your life now has changed, and people will notice. Your thought process for decisions are going to stand out in society today. But the best argument for the faith is when the saints live it out. Now, when I think of big alarms and preparation, I think of a firehouse. Mostly because there's one next door that often reminds us that it's there, sometimes during our gathering. And then I got curious as to what happens when an alarm goes off in a firehouse. <clears throat> Luckily, I was able to reach out to our own Wayne Pallette, who was a former battalion chief. So I asked him, what are the expectations of a firefighter after the alarm goes off? He said, the goal is always to be out the door in under three minutes. I can't even find matching socks in three minutes. <clears throat> but the, these men and women are trained to respond to an alarm in an emergency in a short amount of time because real danger is present and lives are on the line. And I started to see parallels between being ready to contend for the faith and fighting fires. So I said, hey, tell me more. How do you do it? Wayne then went through a long list of, of things that they do before the alarm goes off. They don't wait for the alarm to go off and then react. <clears throat> they identify which exact truck they're going to take. They constantly just drive around the neighborhood, memorizing the streets, knowing different ways to get to the same place. They have their turnout gear and boots out by the truck ready to jump into. Each firefighter knows what he or she is going to grab in-house and load it on the truck based on the situation. They run drills from start to finish two to three times a month. You see, a firefighter is not surprised when an alarm goes off. And neither should a Christian. The question is, are we willing to prepare for what that alarm is calling us to do? Remember that we can contend without being contentious. Jude gives us wisdom to keep in mind on how to engage in verses 22 and 23. And in summary, he says, have mercy on those who doubt. 
Find those in imminent danger and save them by snatching them out of the false gospel fire. But be extremely cautious when showing mercy to the wolves. Don't attempt to be a double agent on the inside because their teachings can be enticing. The best thing we can do to become a church that is effective in contending for the faith is to become a church well built in the faith. Now, as we start to wrap up, I want to talk about the biggest reason why I think let uh, believers let contending for the faith fall by the wayside. We live in a society that does not disagree with courtesy, if that makes sense. Disagreement is interpreted as hate. And therefore, people overcompensate in the name of love by avoiding what is considered offensive to someone else. The thought process may go like this. Well, I don't want to offend my friend who is wrapped up in following a false gospel, so I'll just show them love by keeping their happiness and our relationship status quo. Now, I know this is hard to hear, and it may be uncomfortable, but stick with me. If this is our approach, what our passive actions are communicating is that the issue we've identified as a direct violation of God's law and character is not as offensive as the idea of me disagreeing with someone else. The issue we've identified as a direct violation of God's law and character is not as offensive as the idea of me disagreeing with someone else. Our weighted criteria has shifted, and our love for God, our vertical love that we have, is no longer the primary, and now it's secondary. Love among people has now become primary. That's the horizontal love. That's our emphasis all of a sudden. And now you're elevating creation over the creator. Just like math, if you remember PEMDAS, there's an order of operation to love. <clears throat> it's in Jesus' answer to the Pharisee lawyer, Matthew 22, 37 to 40. Jesus says, and he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. If we love God first, then we must love what matters to God first. Protecting the gospel from ungodly people who pervert, manipulate, and add to it matters to God. Contend without being contentious. Vodi Bakum, who's an American pastor, author, and educator, identifies two options that each genuine believer has when it comes to contending for the faith. He says, either... We love lost people enough, and we love God enough and the gospel enough to stand up, confront, condemn, and call out so that the gospel can be heard rightly. Or we choose a false, unbiblical, horizontal definition of love that would have us, in the name of love, not say anything while the perversion of the gospel is being passed off as the gospel, and people are condemned because of it. 
If you love people and you love God, rescue them when you see them in trouble. Brother and sister of Christ Church, this morning Jude is appealing to you and me. Will we contend for the faith? We are called by the Spirit, beloved in God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ with mercy, peace, and love multiplied on us, building ourselves up in holy faith and praying and waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that eternal life awaits. What more assurance do you need? None. We are ready. Let's pray. Father God, as followers of Christ, we believe and trust in the words that you have provided to us in the Bible. Give us an appetite to study it. Let our lives reflect how thankful we are that you love us the way that you do. These words from Jude given to him by the Spirit are a call to action that may be uncomfortable, but we value the faith and have a duty to contend for it. It's the last couple of verses in Jude that provide us the comforting words that we need to hear. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. 